Good morning. Today's reading is from Isaiah chapter 7, verses 10 through 16. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Oh, wow. Thank you. Yeah, all right. Name the musical. Les Miserables. That's right. Uh, some people were questioning, what does Les Miserables have to do with Christmas or Advent? And the answer is nothing. Uh, mostly, I was just trying to get your attention a little bit with that. But actually, I love Les Miserables so much, and I've got a little bit of a history uh, with it. When, um, when I was a kid, about 10 years old, my mom took my sister to go see the Broadway performance of Les Mis in San Francisco. And I really wanted to go with them, but my mom said, no, can't afford to take you as well. So she took my older sister, but they brought back for me the CD of all of the Broadway music. And I listened to that thing so much. I loved it. I memorized all the songs. I played it for my friends. I even played it in class one day at school. I was such a nerd. But it was so great. But the reality is, I didn't actually even fully understand the story of what was happening because all I had was the music. I didn't have the, the context of the story that the music belonged in in order to have a full understanding of it. It wasn't until I was in my 30s that I finally saw Les Mis at the Keller. After 20 years of listening to this music, I sat there, just my mind blown, finally understanding all of the pieces of the story that connected all of the music together. And I had a richer understanding of who the character characters were and what the, what the plot was. And, I mean, honestly, I wept like a baby afterward. Shortly after, uh, then they came out with the movie version with Wolverine, the gritty kind of one, you know? And it was like a whole nother layer of understanding for me with new visuals that went along with the story. Now, after that, I read the book. 
And it was just like, oh my goodness, there were so many layers to everything and the depth, the richness to all of the characters and the plot and everything that was happening. I just, I could not, I couldn't believe what I was reading. And honestly, I wept again. All of those experiences, they gave depth, uh, like moving from 2D to 3D to my understanding of the story. Now, we have been talking about a different story lately, the story of Advent. Each week, we've been adding a different layer of understanding to that story. We started out in the first week with the plot. What is the overall story of Scripture that we're looking at? Then we looked at the promise. What is the promise that God has made for us? Then we talked about patience, how we have to wait for that promise to come into fulfillment. And then today, we're going to talk about presence. And our starting point is going to be this passage that Sherry read for us from the book of Isaiah. Here's a photo taken of Isaiah when he was talking to some angel babies. That's actually the Sistine Chapel, not a photo of Isaiah. Now, our passage for today may have some familiar words for you, but it also may be a little bit confusing. If you're a little bit confused, don't worry about it. Just about everyone has been confused about this passage for centuries. Scholars are always debating. The part that sounds familiar to you is probably from verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. The part that ends up being a little bit confusing is who is Emmanuel? Because the rest of the passage is all about Ahaz and Isaiah. And there's like this, there's like this historical layer to it, this historical aspect to it of, of what's being written But then there's something that's kind of future-focused as well that's happening in the passage. And honestly, that's what we find throughout the whole book of Isaiah. The whole book of Isaiah is essentially this message initially of judgment for God's people, for Judah and for Israel. They don't trust God. They look to other things or other powers for their provision. And then they treat other people unjustly. Through most of the book, he's giving examples of how this is true, in what ways Israel is unjust, how judgment is coming, and what it's going to look like. He basically keeps saying the same thing over and over and over again, but with a different subject in focus in each particular part. And this particular part right here of Ahaz is just one of those examples Ahaz, he's king of Judah, and he's being attacked by Israel in the north and Aram in the north. But he's given reassurance by God that everything's going to be okay. But he doesn't trust that that's going to actually come about. He's still afraid, even though God tries to reassure him. Now, in Isaiah, all of these passages of judgment are overlaid with messages of hope as well. Hard things are going to happen for Israel. They're going to go into captivity with Assyria and Babylon. 
but God will be faithful to what he said he was going to do. But most of those promises are kind of projected out into the future in some way. And then the book of Isaiah isn't written in a chronological order. So like I said, the messages just keep getting repeated over and over again. The same thing keeps getting said in different ways. So you have these future messages of hope that are overlaid on top of Isaiah's contemporary examples of Israel's unfaithfulness. They all relate, but they're not located in the same space and time. But that's actually why the book of Isaiah still speaks to us today, how it can relate to us today. Because those same messages of unfaithfulness relate to us, and those same messages of hope relate to us as well. Now, sometimes we get kind of lost in the historical layer, but the part that stands out and should be getting our attention is the layer of future hope. You can kind of think about it with the art that we've been uh, having here every Sunday throughout Advent. Corey and now Sarah and Jess as well have been working on this art piece, and each Sunday they've added a new layer to the art. They started off on the first week with kind of a mountain scene. You can kind of see mountains in the distance. And then you could see some rays of light on week two. And then we started to get a picture of the frame and stained glass that's coming on it. And now you can tell that there's something in the center there that's going to be the focal point of what we're going to look at. We don't notice the mountains in the background as much. They're a part of the piece of art, but our focal point is going to be right there on that star that's going to be in the center. All of those layers building one on top of each other. This foretelling of a child called Emmanuel, a future king, is one of those layers. Emmanuel is something bigger than just what is happening with Ahaz. You get a greater sense of that as you continue reading on through Isaiah. He's the star that you're supposed to have your eyes on, that you're supposed to give your attention to. Now, about 800 years later, one of the gospel writers, Matthew, picks up on this layer from Isaiah. He's writing about the birth of Jesus, and he says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. In the whole story of what God is doing, when everything is coming together in Jesus, the focus is on God's presence with his people. Emmanuel. God with us. The presence of God is the gift that he's giving to the world. And the presence of God is one of the most important things that we can grasp in our lives. By the way, I didn't intend that pun of the presence of God as a gift, but I noticed it and I left it. So, I'm, I don't know, you can be the judge of whether I should have. But In fact, this is the gift that God has been trying to give people 
since the beginning. The presence of God is a massive theme in Scripture. It's one of the most dominant themes that you can find in the whole Bible. And you can see it in detail in so many ways throughout the whole Bible. But let me just give you a few anchor points of where we see it. We're going to go from garden to temple to Jesus to the church and then back to the garden again. So the garden, God's presence with humankind starts in the very beginning. In the book of Genesis, it says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as, as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. There's kind of this sense that this is a regular thing that would happen, that God would walk with the man and his wife in the garden. And notice, though, that even from the very beginning, people were trying to hide from the presence of God. Fast forward in the story a bit, and God has rescued his people Israel from Egypt, and he tells them to construct a temple, or actually a tabernacle initially. The temple is going to come a little bit later. The tabernacle is like the mobile temple, I suppose. But it served the same function, to kind of show this is the place where God's presence dwells. And so around that time, it says, Moses said, I will, or God said through Moses, I will put my dwelling place among you and I will not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. God is still just trying to go, go for a walk with people. That's all he wants. Then we go to Jesus. Jesus, Emmanuel, he's the pinnacle of the, of the whole aspect of God's presence among God's uh, people in the biblical story. And the Apostle John wrote, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. After Jesus went, we've got the church. In the book of Acts, we see how after Jesus ascended to be with the Father, the Holy Spirit comes down in dramatic fashion on all of the followers of Jesus, and they become filled with the glory of God. They become the temple, the people do, the temple or the tabernacle of God's presence. And then later the Apostle Paul writes, in him, that is in Jesus, in Christ, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. You can see verbally all of the connections there in bold between these passages. And then in the end, we bring it back to the garden. Just as we started in the garden, we ended in the garden. John talked a few weeks ago about how God is saving the world through trees, which connects to that idea of the garden. The second garden is the ultimate goal. It's the telos. It's the thing that God is working all of history toward. And it said, uh, uh, the, the Apostle John wrote in the book of Revelation, this is right at the end of the Bible, it says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. 
They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. God wants to be with people. If you don't know that, that God wants to be with you and wants you to be with him, you need to hear that today. He wants to dwell with you. He wants to go on a walk with you. Now, personally, sometimes I feel like I don't know why he wants to be with me, but I trust that he does. Now, there's way more that could be said about this, like how God always reassures people who are afraid in the Bible with the phrase, I will be with you, or how sometimes God removes his presence from people in the Bible, and it always has a catastrophic effect. The way that the authors of Scripture talk about God's presence is that it is absolutely the best possible thing for us, something that is completely irreplaceable, and something that we desperately, desperately need. David wrote in the book of Psalms, You reveal the path of life to me. In your presence is abundant joy. At your right hand are eternal pleasures. Now that sounds really nice, but God's presence is also kind of a terrifying thing. When Moses brought the Israelites to Mount Sinai, out of Egypt, to meet God in that space, God came down on the mountain in a really dramatic way, and this is what happened. It says, when the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen but do not have God speak to us or we will die. Well, they wouldn't have died, but they were afraid based on what they were experiencing that they would because God isn't some passive force. He isn't a wish granter. He's not grandpa in the sky. He's powerful enough to speak creation into existence. He's powerful enough to calm the wind and the waves. And he's powerful enough to raise the dead back to life. And all of that greatness and all of that goodness exists within the gift of Emmanuel. The gift of God with us through Jesus Christ. All the fullness of God dwells in Jesus. And this is where the layers of meaning stack up upon each other. That the God of creation, the Almighty, loved the world in this way. That he himself experienced humanity. And all the dirt and stink, all the crudeness, the joy, the pain and hurt, the mundaneness, the work and the tension, the desire, the longing, the left wanting, the laughter and the tears, the fear 
of rejection and the actual rejection that comes with being human, God experienced. The depth and the richness of that in God. He's not far off. He is with us. It's one thing to say God is with us generally because God is everywhere, right? But it's another thing to say that God is with us in a particular way, in a specific way. Humanity can't say that he wasn't with us. He was with us in the most real way possible. So what does all that mean for us today? I mean, God came in Emmanuel, Jesus, God with us. He was with humanity. It's a mind-blowing concept to try and wrap our heads around. But Jesus died on our behalf. He was raised from the dead, and then he ascended to heaven. So he's not with us anymore, right? That's not exactly true. He's not with us in the same way, but he's still with us in a very real way. God is still dwelling and walking with his people. We primarily see that through the Holy Spirit, like we talked about in Acts. The Holy Spirit came down on his people. They became the dwelling place of God. And every follower of Jesus since then has been given the Spirit within them so that God will dwell with them and live with them. What I hope to get across today is that God's presence right now is more real and significant than we probably realize. And that that presence is a gift from God that we can give to others. So the trajectory that we're going on here is first with God, then in community, and then on mission. Now, the framework for that has been heavily influenced by an article that was written many years ago by Henry Nouwen called Moving from Solitude to Community to Ministry. And it's one resource that I want to provide for you. There are several resources on this topic of God's presence that I want to provide for you. So they're going to be listed in my notes, which you can find online, and we'll also send them out in next week's uh, musing email on Wednesday. If you don't get those emails, contact our office or go to our website so that you can start to receive those. There'll be several, several different resources there, books and articles that you can take a look at. And if you want to dig a little deeper, if you want to spend a little more time thinking or learning about the presence of God, pick one or two of those. Don't pick them all. Just pick one or two. They approach the topic in different ways, but they're all basically saying something very similar at the core of them. And just to give you a sense of what that is, here are a couple of the authors. Brother Lawrence puts it this way. The most holy and necessary practice in our spiritual life is the presence of God. Or as Greg Boyd says, I've become absolutely convinced that remaining aware of God's presence is the single most important task in the life of every follower of Jesus. Now, John may say that watching the Cowboys today is a close second. I don't know. He might. I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I'm sure he'll, he'll probably be checking out the game. 
Okay, so with that in mind, let's start with God. What does a typical day look like for you? Just imagine what a typical day is for you. For me, my alarm goes off. I hit the snooze like 50 times. My wife loves it. Maybe I get up and go for a run if I can drag myself out of bed. I get ready for the day. I have some time in scripture and prayer. I take my kids to school and then I come to the office. I have meetings with people and I do tasks. Some of the tasks are kind of mundane, like looking at carpet for our remodel. I head home at the end of the day. Maybe I stop by the store and I pick up some groceries. I get home and I spend time with my family. We have dinner together. Then we do a cleanup. Then we get the kids to bed. Then maybe I'll spend the night doing some work or reading, or maybe I'll watch TV, or maybe I'll fold laundry, or I'll talk about finances with my wife. Some days are good. Some days are hard. Some days I feel stressed or anxious. Some days I feel loved. Some days I feel lonely. Some days I get to spend with friends and family. Some days are more exciting, but most of the days are just kind of typical days, which is why they're typical. Maybe you can relate to some of that. It's just kind of life. It's the day in and the day out that we all have to do. You know, there used to be this video game called The Sims. Have you ever heard of it before? And basically the point of The Sims is that your character had to do all of the mundane things of life in order to survive in the game, like cook and clean and have fun and sleep and all this kind of stuff. I looked it up as I was, you know, I hadn't heard about that game in a long time and thought about it a long time. I didn't realize it is one of the most popular selling video games in history. The Sims. My own life is mundane enough. I don't need to experience that digitally as well. All of that is a layer of my existence. In fact, it's the most tangible, felt aspect of my existence. But I'd like to propose to you that there's another layer of my life, a layer that adds way more meaning and richness, a layer that changes the experience of each of those things in a typical day for me. In the 17th century in France, there was a, a man named Nicholas Herman. He was born into poverty, didn't have much choice when he got older than to join the military, and he fought in the 30 Days War, and he was injured there. And then he went on to serve in a house as a footman, where he was described, or he described himself as an awkward fellow who broke everything. Nicholas dealt with a lot of fear about the things that he had done in life that he felt were really bad. And he felt like he was never going to be acceptable to God, but he really wanted to dedicate his life to God, so he became a monk. And in the monastery where he, was, where he lived, he was described in this way as rough in appearance. And he was given the lowliest tasks of a cook and a sandal maker. And as a monk, he went by the name Brother Lawrence. 
And he lived an incredibly mundane life by all appearances. But he put it upon himself to recognize the presence of God and to acknowledge it in his life and to remain in conversation with God throughout the day. This added such a layer to his life that as a cook and a sandal maker, he was sought after for wisdom so that other people could understand why he experienced so much peace. His writings and his teachings ended up being recorded in a book called The Practice of the Presence of God, and it's been a helpful book to many people for more than 300 years. Many of you have probably picked it up at one point or, or another. All you have to do then is become a monk. That's it. You'll be holy and special. No, actually, the whole point is that he had a very normal life of washing dishes and making sandals. That was his whole life. It's, if, if that's all that we knew about in his life, you would have missed the depth and richness of what was actually there. This is the layer of richness that can overlay the very normal things in our lives. Every aspect of how we understand our lives changes in the presence of God. I understand the story of my life differently because it's no longer my story. I live in God's story. I understand the characters of the story differently. I have a different view of myself and other people in the presence of God. The experience of God's presence in my life allows me to see things that I wouldn't otherwise see. Recognizing the distinct presence of God in your life may be the most significant thing that you can do. I was trying to think through kind of like the core of what is it that is really experienced in the presence of God. And as I was thinking and praying about it and reading scripture about it, it really came down to, I think, what we talk about in Advent when we light these candles. Hope, love, peace, and joy. I think those are the things that are at the core of what we experience in God's presence. In fact, that's what Jesus brought Emmanuel, God, with us when he came in presence, in the flesh, hope, love, peace, and joy. And that's, again, what we experience then when we acknowledge God's particular presence with us now. Hope, because there's something greater than our day-to-day -day lives. Love, Understanding that that's the most important identity that I have. In Jesus, we are a beloved child of God. Peace, resting securely knowing that God cares about us. And joy, being set free from, finding, from having to find happiness in ourselves or in the world. If you're feeling despair, or loneliness, anxiety, sadness, if you feel like you need more hope and love and peace and joy, you'll find it in the presence of God. 
And that's not to say that there aren't other things that are helpful when you're experiencing loneliness and anxiety and counseling, for example, you know, example can be a helpful thing if you're experiencing despair or anxiety. But I don't want you to miss how important it is to know God's presence with you. In fact, my own counselor, my personal counselor, the very first time that I ever met with her, this was the task that she gave me. She said, all that I want you to do is recognize that Jesus is with you, right there with you, his hand upon your shoulder, in your office, in your car, in your home, and to talk with him like he's there with you throughout the day. I think that's what the Apostle Paul called praying without ceasing. I listened to this conversation between a pastor and a psychologist this week, and they talked about it as making God the center of your emotional universe. To do so is the simplest discipline, and yet it's very difficult to maintain. That's why I love Brother Lawrence, because he acknowledges the challenge of it, and then he covers it with grace. He says, I kept my mind in his holy presence. I recalled his presence as often as I found my mind wandering from him. I found this to be a very difficult exercise, yet I continued despite the difficulties I encountered. I did not allow myself to become upset when my mind wandered. One more point that I think is important in mentioning this. Ultimately, recognizing the presence of God is submitting to his will. It's submitting yourself to his will. When you trust that Jesus is the Savior of the world, when you acknowledge that he is your king, Paul says that you have been rescued from the kingdom of darkness and that you've been brought into the kingdom of Jesus where he is king. Recognizing God's particular presence in your life is about making every moment a kingdom moment. Every moment, a worship moment. Every moment, a holy moment. When Jesus arrived, he said, the kingdom of God is among you. Doing the dishes can become a kingdom moment. Any part of your job can become a kingdom moment. The time when you're waking up or when you're first laying down to go to bed can become a kingdom moment. While you're playing The Sims, can become a kingdom moment. It becomes a kingdom, kingdom moment when you say, your will be done, Lord, and not mine. Okay, let me ask you a question. How do you experience God's presence throughout the day? How do you personally experience God's presence throughout the day? What is it that triggers that for you? Great, I've got some tools for you. I can see you need them, no problem. 
How is it that we experience God's presence every day? Here's the difficulty in talking about this. It's so simple that it's difficult to really think, well, isn't there more to it? What is it that will remind you of God's presence throughout the day? Greg Boyd, uh, he says he writes notes to himself all over the place that says, are you awake? And every time he sees that note, it's a reminder to himself, are you awake to God's presence in your life right now? Frank Laubach, uh, he was uh, um, a guy who did incredible work in literacy and was a missionary in the Philippines. He, did, he wrote uh, about this thing called the game of minutes or the game with minutes. And he actually created a whole game with rules and instructions. But the heart of it basically was that his challenge to himself was to recognize God's presence at least one second of every minute of the day. To be safe. I mean, I feel much safer in God's presence for sure. Absolutely. Thank you, Chuck. I think that that is, that's part of the peace that we experience when we know that God is with us. Another trick, honestly, is just to use some we language. All right, Lord, what are we going to do right now? What do you want us to go do right now? What are, what, using plural language like that. Or another way is to always have an empty chair set up where you are. Or if there is an empty chair, picturing Jesus there with you in that empty chair. There are millions of ways you can do it. You've got to find what's going to work for you because it's going to help you see what's actually important in the story of your life. Okay, I spent a lot of time on the with God. We're going to breeze through in community and on mission. So we're going to move on from with God to in community. Presence is a gift from God that we can give to others. The first way that that happens is just in our ability to truly be present with other people, which is a beautiful, meaningful gift to give. There's this video here that's been going around the interwebs lately. Let's take a look. What a little sweetheart. She realized her family was there. She couldn't find them. And she saw they were present there in the audience. And she just got so excited and started crying. Truly being present, not just physically, but emotionally and mentally present with another person is a huge gift to give. Being with God is where you learn who God is and who you are in relation to God. So through Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, you are the beloved daughter or son of God. All of your worth is found in that truth. And if you don't know that yet, that's your starting point today. God demonstrated his love for you when Jesus gave his life for you. You are that valuable to him. When we know our identity as the beloved, then we move into community Uh, no longer needing to find our belovedness in the community. 
because we have that from God. And instead, we get to recognize the value and belovedness in others. We get to be present for them, not trying to get something from them. That's the layer of our lives with God that we take into relationships with others. It's noticeable to other people. When you're attuned to the presence of of God in your life, other people can tell. Like you just smell different maybe or something. I don't know. When we are then, we go from in community to on mission. Presence is a gift from God that we give to others. And another way that this can happen connects to our teaching series that we've been doing lately on the book of Acts. We've been teaching through the book of Acts in the fall. We're going to pick that up again in January after Advent. You, if you're visiting, we'd love to have you uh, for that. The book of Acts is all about what happened to the followers of Jesus after Jesus was raised from the dead and ascended, went to be with the Father. It's about how the Holy Spirit filled those followers and how they went out proclaiming, testifying, witnessing about the good news of Jesus. When Jesus went away, they, the followers, became the presence of Jesus on the earth. We saw earlier how the Apostle Paul had kind of compared those followers to the temple or the tabernacle. But elsewhere, he compares us to the body of Christ, a body with a torso and arms and legs and hands and feet. Together, followers of Jesus are the hands and feet of Jesus on earth now, giving the task of being his representatives to do kingdom work now as we wait for Jesus to return. The more we experience the gift of God's presence in our own lives, the better the gift we will be to the rest of the world. We want to be the iPod that Michael Scott gave away in the white elephant gift in the office. Yes. Maybe it's an iPhone now. It's not an iPod anymore. All right, let me wrap it up here real quick. Presence of God is awesome, but I don't want to be too idealistic about it. I don't want you to feel like this is before you and now you have to always be experiencing the presence of God because that's not going to happen. Just like Brother Lawrence, we're going to have some difficulties with it. It isn't easy to maintain all the time. And even when we are consciously aware of it, It's not like we're going to experience this sense of euphoria all the time either. There have been times in my life, periods of time, where I felt like I I am in the presence of God in a distinct way, and that has been very meaningful for me. And I have to remember those times because I don't always experience that, nor am I always disciplined in reminding myself about the presence of God all the time. We have all kinds of experiences. In fact, even this year, I had an experience where I felt abandoned by God. And I told him that in prayer. God, I feel like you abandoned me in that situation. The further I get away from it, the more I can look at it and see that I didn't actually know all of what was happening. And certainly God was with me in that moment. He hadn't abandoned me. But that's just to say, 
our life in God isn't up and to the right. That's not the experience that we're going to have. you got to ride the ups and downs that go along with it. But you're not alone. Even if you feel alone, you are not alone. God is with you. I'm going to finish with this quote by a a pastor, Calvin Miller. He's no longer alive. This is from his book, uh, The Table of Inwardness. And he uses the presence of God. uh, He uses the analogy of sitting just you and Jesus at a table in the wilderness. So he says, I know now the great truth of the wilderness table. I will never force the cosmic Christ into some corner where I may feed him sour bits of church life. Nor will we meet only where the institution agrees to our meetings. He will be mine in his own music, and I will be with his song and his enthralled hearer. At the table, we shall talk of our love, and everywhere else, we shall glory in it. Thus, the intimate wilderness is expanded till all parades and markets and all nature itself yields to his presence and are glad to host his silent yet roaring reality. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for your presence here in this space right now. We know that you are here with us. Thank you for your spirit that indwells us. I pray, uh, Father, for everybody in this room, myself included, that you would help us to recognize your particular presence with us in our lives. Here right now, maybe it's how we picture you in this room but in our lives as we go out also. Remind us gently through your spirit that you are near to us all the time, especially when we need to hear from you the most. We love you and we trust you. Amen. Amen.